I want to share with some of you that weren't at um, our church summit that happened a couple of weeks ago, what the Lord has been saying to us collectively as a church. It really has been amazing. The elders met and, and felt God saying something specifically to us. We met with the pastors. The pastors said the same things. We met with the deacons. Same thing. Met with the church. Same thing. And, and the thing that came through, by the way, if you missed that, you can listen to them online. I think I saw Matt Crush. We were working on getting them online. Hopefully they are. If not, you call the office. They are available. But uh, there are three things we felt God calling us to return to this year. And the first was that he was calling us to return to our first love, to a passion and longing for Jesus. And we call this loving up. The second is, we sense as a church that God is calling us to return to each other. He's asking us to love in. And the third is this, that we sense God saying he's calling us to love out. A return to a genuine concern for the outsider. And uh, tonight, it's my great privilege to open up the introductory sermon or the, the introduction to this Sermon on the Mount. And for me, it, it has come all together because last year, I think it was late October, somewhere, it was late last year. I was praying in my bathroom because when you have kids, you tend to find uh, spaces. And uh, I think that day I was, yes, I was praying in the bathroom. I don't know where my family was, but I heard God clearly saying, Matthew, I want you to preach on the Sermon on the Mount. My people need to hear my voice again. And I tell you tonight, if God had not spoken to me and asked me to do this, I wouldn't preach it. This is Jesus' masterclass of what a Christian truly is. And I'm in awe of this sermon. And tonight, if you are here hoping for five points on how to be a better person, I'm going to disappoint you. I sense tonight God is saying there is a preparation that needs to happen in us before the sermon hits us like a freight train. I tell you, Jesus had the most profound words. It is totally other or otherworldly. And tonight, before we start discussing what his words are in detail and we start moving towards this content of the Sermon on the Mount, I sense God saying there's something that needs to happen first in us in order for us to be able to receive and be ready for what Jesus wants to tell us. And so I'm going to work my way towards the very first verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, which people often forget is the context of the next two glorious chapters, three actually, five, six, and seven. So let's read together from Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. 
Matthew 4, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who, he is, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds... Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. My first and most important point tonight is that a Christian is first and foremost a disciple. Isn't it interesting in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, and we know it, it's when Jesus says, go into all the world. Does he say, go into all the world and make Christians of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No, no, he says, go into all the world and make disciples. That's big. And tonight, it might shock you, but before I get to that point, let me tell you what a disciple is. A disciple simply means a follower. That's all. And Christians weren't known as Christians until a bit later. In actual fact, if you were known as someone who follows Jesus, you were called a disciple. That was your identity. You followed something or someone. And in Acts 22 verse 4, Paul calls these followers, followers of the way. That way comes from that scripture where Jesus talks about, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They were known as followers of the way. And the term Christian, this might shock you, only came later in Acts, when in Antioch they were called this for the first time. In Acts 11 verse 26, it says, and in Antioch the disciples, the disciples were first called Christians. A Christian is a follower. But what do we follow as Christians? Is it the mission statement of the church? Do any of you know what the mission statement of the church is? Is it getting excited about this summation of what we're supposed to be doing as a church? Is it a popular preacher or pastor in ministry? And I want to say tonight... If you're looking from the outside in, maybe Sterling's new, this church thing's new. You're looking in and going, I'm not too sure what these guys are doing. You've come at the perfect time because you're going to hear about what a Christian truly is. And I would forgive you tonight if you looked into the church and you saw us as a bunch of fan clubs. You know, when I walk into a Christian bookstore, I ask myself the question, how much does the church today worship personalities rather than Jesus? And you'll hear Christians, they have this fan, they're fans of this, this person, or this, this minister, or this preacher. Or is it, do we follow tonight, a blessing? 
And that blessing can come in whatever form. Is it a comfortable life? Is it wealth? Is it health? Is it success? Because if you go into Christian bookstores and you listen to Christian radio stations, I would not blame you if you're on the outside looking in tonight thinking that's what Christianity is all about. Do we follow a system or code? Some of us here attend every service, every meeting, every small group gathering. That's fine if that's what the Lord has put in your heart to do. But I tell you tonight, we do not follow the church. Being engaged with all of her activities is not what Christianity is all about. And that might be helpful for you tonight. Because if that's not clear to you, you won't understand what salvation is. I'll get to that. I'll tell you what our greatest danger is with our Baptist heritage. Is that we think we follow doctrine. Do we follow teaching? I'll tell you what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, a church can be perfectly orthodox and perfectly useless. Michael Eaton put it this way, you can be so sound in your theology, but sound, sound asleep. You know what our problem is when we get together for our Baptist assemblies? Forgive me tonight, those who are Baptist stalwarts. I'm just telling you the danger of where we come from. Every heritage has its weakness. Ours is this. What we are interested in is not what the preacher has to say, necessarily what Christ has to say by the Spirit in what he's bringing, what we're interested in is whether his theology is perfect. Do you know how you tell if you think that you follow doctrine or teaching is that you have a critical spirit? When you're here tonight, you go, oh, I can't stand it's that preacher. Oh, what he does, it's so annoying. Or he doesn't quite focus enough on that aspect of theology I feel the most strongly about. The heart is so far removed from the head. We think we are something because we know something. That's rubbish. Let me tell you tonight. The identity of a Christian is a person like you and me who is a, following a person called Jesus Christ. He is at the center of of everything Christianity is. He is at the center of salvation. Do you want to know what it means to become a Christian? It is receiving a person. His name is Jesus. In John chapter 1 verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive what? A sinner's prayer? A Christian value system from your parents, your mom and dad? Bible stories from Sunday school? No, no, it says, but to all who did receive him, Jesus Christ. To those who believed in who? His name. He gave the right to become children of God. My friend, if Christ means nothing to you tonight, you are not saved. If you cannot see that a person, Jesus, had to stand in your place, a person is your substitute because of your sin, you're not saved. I don't care what prayer you prayed 20 years ago. If Christ means nothing to you, you're lost. And I'll put it to you like this tonight. You are not saved by having your bum in the seat here. You are saved by encountering a person. His name is Jesus. And until you can say, this man is my only hope this man, Jesus Christ, and what he did for me, for me personally, until you can say that you are not saved. 
A Christian is somebody who looks at Jesus and sees him as precious. He is the center of all scripture. Do you know why I get offended when Baptists are called people of the book? I don't want to be known as people of the book. I want to be known as a person of Christ. Because what happens is we so glorify this Bible and think in this, Jesus said, like he said to the Pharisees, in this you think you have life. There is no life in this. It points you to the person in whom life is found. And this is the marvelous thing about Jesus. There's this moment, I love it, in Luke 24, when there are two disciples, they are so depressed. Why? Because a person, Jesus, was crucified. A person was their hope. Everything, all their hopes and dreams of the future of their lives in Israel and salvation was sending this person, Jesus, and he was dead. And they are so depressed because they realize without Christ, the cause is finished. And a stranger comes alongside them. They don't know who it is at first. And then he starts, the stranger starts, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is all the written testament, the Old Testament up until that point of his coming, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus. And when they saw who it was, there was a moment when their eyes were unveiled and they realized this stranger was Jesus. It wasn't the fact that they'd seen Jesus face to face that made their hearts come alive. It says, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Tonight, church, all wisdom and knowledge is found in this glorious Jesus. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, I can so relate to him. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When you gaze into the person of Jesus, you gaze into who God is. When you start to see Jesus, you start to see the full extent of the love of the Father. When you start to see Jesus, you start to see your full hope of salvation. All wisdom, all knowledge, the full plan of God from beginning to the end of time, coming together in this person, Jesus, moving it forward in Jesus, seeing the promise fulfilled in Jesus, having a hope for the future in Jesus. Everything is Jesus. And because Christ was these early followers' passion and desire. And because he so came to characterize them as a community, ah, then they became known as Christians. It was the greatest compliment the world could ever give them to be so associated with the one they love. I was thinking about an interview I happened to watch a in which Josh Groban, anyone here know Josh Groban? He made a, a, a laughing comment. He says, you know, my fans have called themselves Grobanites. This man means so much to these people. They want his name. They say, what do you follow? I follow Josh Groban. I'm a Grobanite. 
Friends, the church did not name itself Christians. The churches were simply followers of this person, and the world was so, was so caught up with their passion and the characteristics of Christ in them that they gave them the biggest compliment ever. They called them Christians. I say to you tonight, the most painful thing you can say to a Christian is, in the words of John Stott, you are no different to the world around you. And why do I make much of this tonight? It is because this pursuit, this following of Jesus, is what is happening in Matthew 5 verse 1. It is the outflow of the whole Sermon on the Mount. There was this glorious moment when Jesus sees all these crowds. He had thousands of people flocking after him. What did he do? He moved up the mountainside. And his disciples came after him. It was those who wanted Christ, they got to hear the sermon. Tonight, the Sermon on the Mount is going to be a closed book to you. If that is not your motivation in preparing for it, because it was these people who were so passionate to be close to him and to follow him, they were called his disciples. They wanted to be near to Jesus. They wanted to be, they wanted to be out of his sight. They wanted to be close to him and hear what he had to say. It was them who got to see and hear this marvelous sermon in action. It is the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. And I say to you tonight, drawing closer to Christ has to be your motivation if you're going to enter into this sermon. Why? Because this Sermon on the Mount is going to tell you what will happen in your life if you seriously pursue Jesus. This sermon is not a pep talk. This sermon is about living a transformed life. And I tell you, the way Jesus transforms a life, it is totally different to what the world expects it to be. And if you're not ready for it tonight, next week is going to hit you like a freight train and you're going to say, I want to tap out on week one. Because the way Jesus molds his followers is a pattern that is extremely interesting. Do you notice in the very first section, which is called the Beatitudes of verse 2, there is a pattern. Christ's words first cause discomfort. Then it brings blessing. Do you ever notice what the first Beatitude is? On Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, it says, sorry, verse 3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Let me tell you, the first thing you're going to discover if you're going to start pursuing Jesus in your life is that the work of the Spirit is going to empty you of all self-confidence. It's going to make you feel like instead of coming to God with so much in your hand, you're going to come to Him empty. And let me tell you tonight, you cannot be saved any other way. The mark of salvation in a person's life is they are beginning to see their absolute futility before a holy God. And this God is requiring perfection from them, but all they've got to offer is imperfection. They are being emptied of themselves and their self-confidence. That is not a fun thing. It is uncomfortable. Ah, but it leads to blessing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And tonight, Jesus is going to call you over the next couple of weeks to let go of things and move into areas of your life that are going to be highly uncomfortable. The very next one is blessed are those who mourn. Who likes to mourn here? Anybody? Anybody lost, lost a loved one recently? It's devastating. And yet, this mourning of sin and weakness that we begin to see in ourselves, it leads to the most profound comfort. And if Christ is not what we are after, we are going to say, this is too much, I want out. The person that's going to enter into the fullness of this sermon is the one that goes, God, you can take anything from me if you just give me Jesus. All I want is him. You can take whatever. You can lead me into whatever. But if you give me Christ, I'm in. You see, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to make us more and more like Jesus. Transformation. It is the practical outworking of Romans chapter 8, verse 29, which says, For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Do you know what God's mission in your life is? Is to make you look more and more like Jesus. I'm aware here tonight there are some in extreme trial. We see it in our office every day. Guys coming in desperate. And here tonight, I am assured that many of you are facing very, very difficult questions and circumstances outside of this building. But can I maybe help you tonight? What the first thing on God's mind is, is not what you need. It's not your rescue plan. He knows that already. What he is looking for in the trial, in the furnace is, is this person becoming more and more like Jesus? That's his goal. And the reason why the 21st century church cannot embrace suffering is they don't understand its purpose. Let me tell you, we are told from the day we are born to the day we die, we have to avoid pain. My friends, the way we are transformed is through this fiery furnace of trial. It is embracing the discomfort so that we may embrace the blessing. And may I say to you tonight, the blessing far outweighs the pain. And Christ, Christ is the living embodiment of the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to look and see what the Sermon on the Mount looks like with skin on it, with eyes, with ears, with a mouth, it is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate model of the Sermon on the Mount to us. And so we have to look at the life of Jesus as the clue to how to live it. And what I'm going to say next might surprise you. It did mean. Is the Sermon on the Mount is Christ's teaching on the spirit-filled and spirit-led life. Now I'm aware that that might sound like Greek to some of you, <laughs> but hear me for a moment, because if we don't grasp this point, we're going to land in trouble on day one. Do you notice at Jesus's baptism? Before all of this began to happen, all of his public ministry, 
something profound happened to Jesus at his baptism. It was the moment when the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus as a dove and never left. He rested. He remained. And everything happened from then. I'll put it to you like this. Haven't you ever wondered, youth? I did. Why in the scriptures we never hear about Jesus' childhood and lessons? Everybody wondered, what, he was, what was Jesus like as a teenager? Hey? I would love it. I would say to Sarah, my little girl, because I hear as a parent, watch out for those teenagers. I say, you got to be like Jesus, like this. Come on, here's Jesus. Why aren't you behaving like this? Mind you, that's not a very good way of parenting. Sorry. Never mind. I would love to know. Anybody here wondered about what Jesus was like growing up? Why is it what was so profound for me as I was thinking about this? You've got Jesus' half-brothers still alive. James and Jude, that wrote letters in the New Testament. If there was ever access for Matthew to know about what Jesus was like as a child, yeah, you've got his half-brothers. Man, I'd sit them down and say, you tell me about what Jesus was like. And yet there is zip. And I think I've come to the answer of why that is. It's because God overruled that insight because all that matters to him is that you and I, that we see, that you and, you and I see that we need the empowering of the Holy Spirit to live the life that he requires from us. Before then, it was a non-entity. Jesus, don't you remember, he was an ordinary child. He was sinless. There was nothing spectacular about him. Dave and I were talking about it this week. Don't you think it's crazy? This is how insignificant Jesus was, that when his ministry started, his own mother and brothers, this is not a good ego boost, come and say outside the house, you're insane, Jesus. What the heck are you doing? Imagine that. Imagine my mother comes and says, Matthew drags me out the, drags me out the horse and says, what the heck are you doing here? You're losing your mind. They had no idea of Jesus' power and authority in his childhood. They knew it was special. Well, how about this? Imagine you rock up to your hometown. Your hometown. Blue Water Bay in PE. Yes, that's mine. Rock up and I preach my sermon. You know what they said? Man, this is Jesus, Joseph, the carpenter's son. They disregarded what he said because he was so ordinary in their sight. What was the extraordinary moment when everything changed? It was the moment when Jesus had the full empowering, the ungrieved spirit resting on his life. It ignited everything. And that's all God wants us to know because that's what we need to see. And I want to tell you tonight, if you think the Sermon on the Mount is some sort of law code or some pointers to become a better person that you have to keep, it is going to leave you in the dust. There is only one way you can live what Christ is calling us to, and that is by the Spirit. We're going to see that this Sermon on the Mount calls for a Spirit-led and Spirit-filled life. And the blessing of this sermon is it shows you the marks of the Spirit's work in your life. Anybody here want to know when the Holy Spirit's working in their life? I do. Hey? Do you know what the first is? I'll give you an insight into next week. It's brokenness. You know what the second is? In that brokenness, it's mourning. Do 
know that the Spirit led Jesus in Matthew 4, right after this great anointing, into the wilderness. You know what I've come to realize in my life? That in the wilderness, the purpose of God and the Spirit is working itself out in me as much as it is on a Sunday night when I experience the glory of God in worship with my brothers and sisters. It is going from a position of immaturity of seeing how we move from milk to meat, when you start to see how the Spirit moves in your life and the marks of a Spirit-led and Spirit-filled life, it will change the way you see your life. Don't think that the Spirit's leading avoids discomfort. It leads you through it. And so tonight... The Sermon on the Mount is a radical call to discipleship, to a following. And I want to quickly move through my final part of the sermon, which is the picture of what the Sermon on the Mount is going to require of us. And it comes in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus calls his first disciples. The first thing that Jesus says to them and he says to us tonight as we move into Matthew chapter 5 is follow me. In Matthew 4 verse 19, the pursuit of all that we're doing in this following, it is Christ. It is his person. It's not what he, he even tells us to do, our ministries. It's not even the, the written code of, or the, the, the scriptures. It is following Jesus. Unless he is your motivation, you will not want to go into the Sermon on the Mount. Secondly, he is going to call us to a transformed life. These guys went from being fishermen for little fishies in nets to becoming fishers of men. He said, I will make you. He is going to take us into areas of transformation that are going to shift our passion and purpose for what we live for. They went from chasing after fish to chasing after souls. And Jesus said immediately, in, sorry, as in response to what Jesus said, immediately they left their nets. This this Sermon on the Mount is going to call us out of our security and comfort zones. The fishermen, their security was their nets. That was what they used to earn money. That's what they'd known their whole life. And in following Jesus, they had to drop them and leave. Not only that, but this Sermon on the Mount is going to call us to reset our relationships. It says, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. When I read this, for the, it was the first time I clicked. Here you've got Zebedee the dad, and he's got his two sons. This is the family business. Here he is. Here's his future retirement. His two sons are going to take over his boat and his nets. It's all sorted. And when Christ calls his sons, he has to release them. That relationship changes forever. And I want to say to you, if you are willing to enter into the Sermon on the Mount, it is going to touch every relationship in your life, every security, every comfort zone. And the biggest thing is it's going to ask you to trust Christ for your future. When Christ called these fishermen, they didn't know where the heck they were going. Anyone feel like they're following Jesus? I can relate. Obedience comes before the detail. 
And what happens is they say, Christ has called, I am going. I don't know where he's going. He didn't say for the next three years, we're going to go to Palestine. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this together. No, no, no. What Christ said is, you follow me. And they jumped into the deep end. And so my application of tonight is this. We only really have one choice in this life. There's only one choice that matters. It is whether or not you are going to make Christ the passion and pursuit of your life, whether or not he's going to be your driving ambition. That's all that matters. May I remind you tonight, this world is passing away. That relationship that is outside the permission of God for you, it is passing away. That perfect job you dream of or you think you have, it is passing away. That standard of living or lifestyle you feel so comfortable in, you find your identity and you rock up here in the right car with the right clothes, the right makeup, the right stuff, that stuff is passing away. That fortune you're amassing for your future that you can live comfortably, it is passing away. That perfect marriage you long for or think you're in, give it a few more years, it is passing away. That precious reputation you've taken your whole life to carve out. Guys, you spend hours in the gym. For what? Those muscles are going to pass away. I say to you tonight, there is one thing that will stand. If there is one thing you hear from me tonight, that degree is passing away. That perfect girl you fantasize about, she's going to pass away. One thing is going to stand. And it's going to be before a person, Jesus. And on that day, he's going to ask one question. How did you follow me? What did you do for me? Was I the pursuit of your life? I come to you tonight. This is the most serious question. You're going to leave this place and face all these lovely temptations. Let me tell you, they are a lie. The one thing you must decide is, what are you going to do with Jesus? You will waste your life. Don't be a Samson. But I will say, if you have been, take heart. Samson still fulfilled his purpose at the end. But let me tell you tonight, what matters is eternity. What matters is what you will say before him one day. That's the gist of this life. It's not what people think of you. No one cares about the beard. No one cares about what you say. They're going to pass away. What does Jesus say? Now I ask you tonight, will you make him your passion? Will you say to him, Lord, I want you more than anything? That is what loving up means. He's saying, Jesus, I'll take you however you come. The second application is this. Will you be willing to pursue Christ in community? We talked about loving in. Do you notice in Matthew 5 verse 1, the disciples, it is plural, heard the Sermon of the Mount together. 
It was not one single person. It was not reserved for precious Paul or precious Peter or the select 12. By the end of Matthew 7, thousands of people had come to hear the Sermon on the Mount. I'm telling you tonight, if we do not see the Sermon on the Mount talking into community, we've missed it. And I'm worried tonight, by the grace of God, some of you might feel a little bit more desirous of Jesus. But if your desire is just for your personal experience in the Sermon on the Mount, you've missed it. We only live it out in its fullness when we do it together. And I will say, when I get the privilege of looking from the front of the church preaching, there are still far too many lone rangers here at Sterling. I want to ask you tonight, how long are you going to walk this thing alone? Because you are going to face things in the Sermon of the Mount that needs the sweetness, the life of community, spurring you on, encouraging, praying for, sharing. This passion for Jesus is not reserved for you. You feed off your brothers and sisters here tonight. And we're going to be talking about small groups going forward. I ask you, is there anybody in this church that knows you? that knows where you are, that knows how you're doing, that can come alongside you and say, what is your passion for Jesus like? We're so self-sufficient. We say, oh, we've got it all together. Let me tell you what this sermon will prove more than anything else is that we are just wrecks outside of Jesus that need the love and encouragement of our brothers and sisters as the tangible experience of Christ's love for us. And the last is this. The future of our church rests upon how we respond to this sermon. I was shaken when I read Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, where Jesus says, and it's plural, it says, you, plural, you disciples, plural, you sterling, plural, you SBC, plural, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If the salt of Christ is not here amongst us, if the taste of Christ is nowhere in our lives, people come here, they leave with a bland taste, there's no life. What is the consequences? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I tell you, this church does not exist because of this nice building or its youth programs or its children's ministries or its productions. That has got nothing to do with what a real community that is salty has, that, that is going to stand the test of time. What matters is, in this place, how passionate do we pursue Jesus? How much can people taste Him when they're around us? Let me tell you, God is not nostalgic. I say this at the summit. God is not sentimental. He's not attached to this building. He's not attached to SBC's reputation as being, oh, this church of whatever it was or has been. What he's interested in is, is there salt and light here? Is the lampstand lifting up the lights? Christ determines whether this church stands. 
And we can exist in name, maybe for decades to come. But if we do not take seriously this call of Jesus, we will just fade into oblivion. We'll be like countless churches before us that have died. Why do I say all this tonight? It's because the way we respond to this Sermon on the Mount will determine what outsiders experience in us. And I say all these things because of this. I am convinced God is calling us deeper. And because of that, I know there is grace here tonight for anybody who wants to come. Because if God sends out the call, he sends out the grace to respond with it. The question is, do you want Jesus? That's the question. And forgive me for being frank. My heart is not to be harsh tonight. I am contending for you. Christ has to be the motivation. If he isn't, in your life at the moment, that's where you've got to start. Let's pray. Lord, tonight, we embrace the question that Dave started right at the beginning of the service. Where are you with the Lord? That's all right. Dane, throughout worship, where is your heart for the Lord Jesus? The sermon going out saying, where is your heart for Christ? If anything else has become more important than him, now is the time to adjust. And for some of us, it's a prayer of saying, Lord, I want to want more again. I want to want you more. And tonight, Lord, we have embraced the discomfort in order to embrace the blessing. We have embraced tonight the reality of how things are. Oh, Lord, because, God, you want to give us the fullness of eternal life. And I pray tonight, Lord, you would awaken and stir and shake the foundations of what we see in this life. That your tenderness will come tonight. Say, so I show you these things so that in Christ you might have life and life to the fullest. Lord, you know we have not tasted life until we've tasted Christ. And He's the one we want tonight. So we're praying for grace. We know you're with us in this. We're so confident, Lord, you're going to help us. You're going to move us from strength to strength. For those who want to draw near to you, Jesus, you will supply in abundance. But I pray tonight, Lord, for those that are uncertain, you're convinced. Show us our need for you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Lord bless you.